Good evening, everybody. Let us get going. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to get as much as possible in in about uh, the next half hour. Um, if afterwards there's any questions, uh, please mark it off, send it to the chat, and um, we, will t- we will try to address it along the way. We're going to try to put in as many halachos that are applicable to the general public um, as possible. Okay? There may be individual circumstances. We're not going to mention each individual circumstance, but if I skip over something and you have a request for information or for halacha, please send it to the chat or uh, mark it down and we will uh, speak about it, Bez Hashem, as the year is over. Okay, so here we go. We're going to begin with Tainus Esther, coming up this Wednesday morning. Okay, Wednesday morning is the fast of Esther, and the fast of Esther was put into place because it was the day that we fought. Esther did not fast on this day. This is, it's called the fast of Esther. She fasted actually on Pesach, well prior to the miracle. But we commemorate her fast on the day of the war because it was the teshuva, it was the repentance and the tefillos, the prayers that went into play from Mordechai and Esther and all the Jewish people that led to the victory, that led to the to the uh, success and the siyata deshmaya from the uh, from the Rebbeinu Okay, so Tainus Esther. So here we go. Tainus Esther takes place on the thirteenth day of Adar. Now it's a lighter fast. It's not as severe of a fast because again, it's not because of mourning. It's more of a commemoration. So halacha number one is that um, even though it doesn't start till the morning, if a person goes to sleep the night before, ideally one should mention that they intend to eat prior to dawn. The fast starts at dawn, and a person should say, you know, I intend, if you didn't say it, but you still intended to wake up early, it will suffice, you don't mamish, you don't literally need to have the words, I intend to eat tomorrow morning before dawn, come out of your mouth, that would be ideal. But if one didn't, it's still permitted to eat. A nursing woman or a pregnant woman should not even try to fast on Tainus Esther. It's one of the lighter fasts, there's no discussion, there's no conversation, doesn't matter what stage of pregnancy she's in, if she's in the beginning of a pregnancy, the end of a pregnancy, anywhere in between, if she's nursing, also, it's not brought down in halacha how old the baby is. You can say, listen, what if you're nursing a 14-month-old baby who's also eating solids? No, the halacha is, you're nursing or pregnant, there's no obligation whatsoever to fast on um, Tainus Esther. Also, anybody who's feeling ill, a person who's feeling they're really not functioning properly is putter is not obligated to fast and they're able to eat in the usual fashion. On some fasts that are more severe, we say eat shiurim, eat particular measurements. That does not apply to Tainus Esther. There's also no limit to the amount you could eat. Once you're eating, you should eat. However, it is appropriate to limit your favorite foods. If a person has a favorite food, even if they're not fasting, they should really refrain from eating that favorite food. And I've, just to throw in there, tzaddikim, there are tzaddikim that, by the way, do this even today with Nebuch, the unfortunate situation going on in the Ukraine. There are tzaddikim, and it's turned out from Noach in the Teva. It says that Noach and his wife separated from each other physically for the entire year that they were in the Teva because the world was in pain. And even though they were being saved, there were particular pleasures that they, that they refrained from. And we learned from there that at a time when the world's in pain, it's, in, it's proper, it's the Torah way for a person to accept a little bit upon themselves, to refrain, to realize there are people in the world who are suffering. I have a friend who loves Coca-Cola. Whenever there's a war in Israel, he stops drinking Coca-Cola. That's his thing. Okay, it's a slight thing. It's a little thing. But it's a reminder, it's, it's a way to get us to remember there's, there's people out there who are suffering. It's such a beautiful concept in a way that we train ourselves in our midos. And this thing, this idea holds true as well. It keeps its weight when it comes to a fast. If Claudius is fasting and I don't need a fast, it's still worthwhile to refrain from, uh, from favorite foods. Okay. A person who is healthy, however, does not need a fast for various reasons. There's various re- underlying reasons, maybe you're nervous, you will get sick. But a person who currently is considered uh, healthy, so then they say that also maybe eat a little bit less. 
Because you're not a person who's ill, do not eat less. If you're nursing, pregnant, a person in a situation of ill, do not eat less. Do what you want. Maybe refrain a little bit from the favorite foods. However, if a person's currently healthy, and for whatever reason they got a ruling from a rabbi that because it can lead to an illness and therefore tinus ester, which is one of the lighter fasts they should still eat, then it's worthwhile to perhaps limit the eating. Okay. What about mouthwash and brushing one's teeth? So whenever it's a fast day, one should refrain from brushing their teeth. Again, the fast day does not start the night before. It starts only by dawn. This year, the fast is going to be a little longer than usual because we already changed the clock. You know, sometimes uh, Purim's a little earlier and we haven't changed the clock yet. We've already changed the clock, so it's going to end a little bit later. But mouthwash and toothbrushing really should, a person should try to refrain from. However, what if a person is very sensitive and they realize, you know, if I don't brush my teeth in the morning, if I don't use at least a little bit of Listerine or scope, I'm just, I'm not going to be able to, to function in a usual manner. I'm not going to be able to work. I'm not going to be able to cheat. I'm just going to feel like down and So then in such a situation when a person is really sensitive and they need, they feel they need a, a quick a toothbrush or, or mouthwash, then here's what you should do. Now, again, the whole problem is really we're concerned you might swallow something. So if you do it in a way where logic dictates you won't, sm- you won't swallow, so then it'll be okay. Brush your teeth with your face leaning down into the sink. Put a little bit of mouthwash in and only swipe it around in the front of your mouth. Don't gargle it towards the back of the mouth. In such a scenario, again, if a person feels that they're not functioning without it and it's going to help and, and uh, they need this, so it will be permitted. Okay. A person is permitted to eat up until dawn, as we said. And there are some other fasts where not only do we refrain from eating, but we even refrain sometimes from washing our bodies, from taking haircuts, from shaving. That does, none of this applies to Tinus Esther. Tinus Esther, that applies to fasts that have to do with mourning. Again, Tinus Esther is not about mourning, and therefore there's no restrictions whatsoever. Haircuts, shaving, cutting nails, whatever it is, taking a shower. The only thing that we refrain from is Eating and drinking. That's the, uh, that's the totality of Tynus Esther. Okay, that's a general overview of Tynus Esther as it applies to most people. And if anybody has a particular circumstance, please feel free to send me a, uh, a message or if you're comfortable with it, uh, asking afterwards. Now we're going to move on to... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to ask about eating before hearing the Megillah. Not yet. Not yet. Okay, so you know... About Maisha wants to ask a question. I was going to mention this when it came to the halachas of Megillah reading, but what about eating before reading the Megillah? Because in general, there's a law you're not supposed to eat before you perform a mitzvah. See, the fast is going to end the same time we start the Megillah on Wednesday night. So in general, we say a person should try not to eat um, a mizonos before reading the Megillah. But if a person really uh, needs the energy and they feel they're going to you know, uh, even perhaps even doze off. Not that they're going to get sick, but they may doze off if uh, they don't have something in their body. It would be permitted, since it's already time to break your fast, to take a drink of water and do something of that sort, even though you have not yet read, eat a fruit, even though you have not yet read the Megillah, but a person should try to refrain from eating a Mazonos because really the, the issue of eating before performing a mitzvah is something that you can establish a meal on. Okay. Okay, now there's a custom on Tainus Esther. On the 13th day of Adar, there's a custom to give a machzis shekel, a half of a shekel. Now, where does this come from? So the Ramah, who many of us Ashkenazim, we follow, he says that uh, uh, before Purim, which is primarily on, I'm not, I'm not recording this, I, I'm just going to try to record recording this. Recording in progress. Okay. So, so uh, we'll start with the machzis shekel for the recording. Um, so the same way in the Beis HaMikdash, they would donate in the month of Adar half dollars, a half a shekel, not a half dollar, give a half a shekel to the upkeep of the Beis HaMikdash. So too in the month of Adar, we as Jews are supposed to commemorate that and don't let that leave our reality because every year 
Of course, as Jews, we are confident that this year, Pesach, we will be together in Yerushalayim and this money is going to be needed for the upkeep of the base of Middash. We don't want to forget this opportunity. Now, it says the word giving three times. So nowadays, the custom is to give three half shekels. And the way it works, since it's simply a commemoration, is the custom is to give a half of, your, what, of, of your, the currency of whatever locale you live in. Okay, so bottom line is, really any time in the month of Adar, one should give three half shkalim, or for us here in America, three half dollars, okay, to, to commemorate that. That money could be used for any sort of tzedakah, could be used for poor, it could be used to support Torah, it doesn't really matter. Um, but, uh, uh, but it seems that the ultimate custom to do this is on Tainus Esther. That's when most people are given their half shekel. Okay. Now, ideally, because each Jew gave a half a shekel, ideally, one should give half of the currency. So I might say, listen, I know that three half dollars is a buck fifty. So why don't I just give a dollar fifty, a dollar bill, and two quarters? Yeah. True, you technically could. But that is ex post facto. That's not the ideal way to do it. The ideal way to do it is to give half of whatever your currency is. Because again, that's what happened in the Beis HaMikdash. So granted, if you don't have half dollars, you could use other dimension, other denominations. However, ideally you should use uh, half of whatever the, the uh, local currency is. Okay. What happens if I have a half a shekel? Now... Yeah, Israeli currency. I have a half a shekel and I'm living in St. Louis. Can I give three half shekelim? So in, here in America, because it's a currency in Israel, interesting question. So the halacha is that it depends if the banks in your location will trade it in for your local currency. If I can walk into a bank uh, down the road and give them three half Israeli shekelim, and they'll trade it in for my local currency, that'll be okay. Then it's, it's even, it has enough of a name of currency, even for me now, that such a thing uh, would be allowed. Okay, and again, like we said, if you don't have the half coins, then it's certainly okay to use a dollar bill, but just give the, uh, the proper amount. Okay, now, according to the Ramah, if you look inside the Shulchan Aruch itself, the Ramah says, listen, you know who gave the half shekel, the, the half shkalim? Only men between the age of 20 and above, 20 to 60, they gave the half shekel. But the, uh, the postkim nowadays say that it really applies to anybody above the age of Barabbas Mitzvah. There's different customs for women. Women apparently never accepted fully this custom of the half shekel because they originally didn't have that obligation Therefore, every person should just follow the minog of their family. Most families do not uh, apply the mitzvah of half shekel to the, uh, to the women of the family. Some families do. Just depends what your custom is. If a family does not have a set custom, then there's no requirement whatsoever for a woman to give or for a husband to give on behalf of a wife. Now, um, where should this money go? As we said before, Anywhere. Any, as long as it's considered a tzedakah. As long as it's considered a tzedakah, we can, uh, we can send the money for the, for the machzis shekel over there. It can be done throughout the month of Adar, like we said. It does not need to be Tainus Esther. It just apparently has become the, has apparently become the custom. Now, because it is a completely different obligation than a regular tzedakah, the half shkalim, you're not allowed to use miser. You can't use mice money because the tithing money, one's miser money, is a completely different chiyuv, a completely different obligation than my custom of machzis hasheka. And therefore, you cannot use a dollar fifty of miser to, uh, to cover this obligation. Okay. It's interesting, Shaila, by the way, since it's throughout the month of Adar, what happens if you have a kid who's bar mitzvah after Tainas Esther? 
but he's still in the month of Adar. Uh, what do you do? Uh, what do you do over there? So it seems, practically speaking, this is a unique situation. Practically speaking, we say there's no obligation because again, it's a custom. The custom is primarily on that day. Once he didn't have the obligation on that day, the father does not have to give on his behalf. Okay, that's a general overview of the custom of the machzis hashekel that takes place on erev Purim, on the day prior to Purim. Here we go. Let's get into. Um, some work of Purim before we get into Megillah and Purim itself. So the Machaber, the Shochan Aruch, and the Ramah, they both say that working on Purim depends on the custom. Depends on the Minagamakam. If your custom is that you live in a place where people work on Purim, now work doesn't only mean you go to do your job, it can also mean doing laundry, right? Or, or a particular malacha. Maybe my community has a custom, we don't do laundry on Purim. Okay, maybe that's your communal custom, that'll be, that'll be for you. Doesn't apply to anybody else. Practically speaking, nowadays, the custom is to not go to work uh, on, on Purim. This applies specifically to Purim Day. Now, sometimes you need to go to work. A part of person's going to lose their job, whatever it is. Okay, so it's kind of like Holomite. Yeah, you're allowed to drive, you're allowed to go to work, you can't lose your job, Beseder. But a person should limit it as much as possible because if you do any more than Halacha says to do, you're not going to see bracha, you're not going to see any blessing from it, so you're just spinning your wheels anyway. You just, uh, right? But if, again, if a person is, uh, you know, is at risk of losing their job, then a person would be permitted to go. At night, the night of Purim, meaning Wednesday night, it's certainly permitted to be involved in work. It doesn't seem there's a custom to refrain from that. Okay. Davening on Purim. Tefillah. Davening on Purim. So in davening, we, we uh, add to the prayers uh, Al-Hanisim. In the Shemona Esrei and in our Birchas HaMazin. If a person forgets Al-Hanisim, to add that into his Shimona Esrei, to his Amida, and he forgets in Birchas Hamazon, you do not need to repeat it. Um, however, if you're in the middle of Daviding and you forget Al Anisim in the regular place, as long as you have not yet taken three steps back, you can, let's say you completed all your Brachos and you're in the, the last Yehi Ratzon. Okay? So before, you're, before you take three steps back, you should say Al Anisim just in a way of prayer in a way of request and then uh, you know and then uh, finish off your davening what about reading of the Megillah itself so here we go this is what Rabbi Ramesha brought up before once you reach the time for reading the Megillah a person should not start to eat now what does it mean not start to eat it means do not sit down to a meal this practically will pan out you know, on Wednesday night, we're going to have two Megillah readings in Shul. We're going to have one 45 minutes after sunset, which is 7.52 this year. And we're going to have an additional reading at 9.30. For anybody who can't be there, let's say you have couples, you know, they, they don't want to both be there at the same time, whatever it is, we're going to have additional reading at 9.30. Anybody who's waiting till 9.30 has to know that starting from 9 o'clock, they're not allowed to sit down to a meal because their time for Megillah... Even though you broke your fast and everything, right? But your time for Megillah is going to be 9.30. So um, if, if, that's the, if that's the set time. Okay, now really it has to do before this man of Megillah. But suffice it to say that one should keep this in mind, not to have a meal before the, uh, the actual Megillah reading. Okay. The Megillah reading of the day. You really have the entire day to hear the Megillah. We know in general there's a rule, Zerizim Akdim in the mitzvah, so a person should try to perform a mitzvah as soon as possible and to hear it as early as possible, but if it just doesn't work out, so then one really has the entire day to hear, uh, to hear the Megillah. Trying to... These are the laws of one who's reading the Megillah. I don't think anybody here on Zoom is reading the Megillah for... Others, if you are, um, uh, we can go through your halachos as well. Let's get into the halachos for the person listening to the Megillah. So this is very important. A person hearing the Megillah is not allowed to talk during the Megillah. What if one did talk? So here we go. 
If your talking caused you to not hear a word of the Megillah, so now you didn't hear the whole Megillah, you didn't fulfill your mitzvah. But if your talking did not cause you to lose a word, even though you shouldn't, even though one shouldn't have done that, one still has fulfilled his obligation. Now there's a very important halacha to know, and that is, if a person comes late to Megillah, Megillah's all or nothing. You can't miss a single word. So in general, what we say, if you walked in a minute late, you might as well go home and hear it a different time. That's in general. However, there is an interesting halacha that I would like to share, if a person could pull this off. And that is, you really only need to hear a majority of a Megillah from a cloth, from a regular Megillah scroll. Every other part I can technically make up by reading myself. From a Chumash. So what happens if I walk in and they just finished reading the brachos? Just as an example, they may have even started the first few verses. Enough that I know that if I quickly say the brachos quietly to myself and kind of like listen in to the balkore and keep my finger and then just catch up and whisper to myself, you know, each word, and then I could catch up to the balkore by the time he's up to 11th or 12th pasuk, I can do that. If I could pull that off, I'm allowed to do that. In general, though, the Megillah moves so fast, it's very, very hard, uh, it's very, very hard to keep up. Now, a person who's in doubt whether they heard each word of the Megillah. So, really, you should make sure that you did it right. So you should go back and hear it again. What happens, however, if you think you missed, but everybody else says you didn't? It's never happened, like somebody's reading the Megillah, and you say, oh, I think he missed a word. Like afterwards, I mean, are you sure? Everybody else does. Sounds, sounds pretty good to me. Like we, we didn't notice that he missed. Then everybody, even the one who thinks that maybe he missed a word, also got his mitzvah. You don't need to be OCD about it. If everybody told you that it was read properly and you were listening the whole time and everything was okay, even if you're so confident and you're convinced that maybe it wasn't, it's okay, you could rely on everybody else and you fulfilled your mitzvah. Hearing a Megillah through a telephone does not suffice. It does not work. One has not fulfilled their obligation. However, I want to mention something over here, and this is applicable in a lot of situations. There's people who can't make it to Megillah. What if somebody's traveling? What if somebody's on an airplane? What if somebody's stuck at home? They're ill. They're not well. So here's the, there's a number of different pieces of advice. Here's one that I think is beautiful and educational. But it only works if you can get your hand on a kosher Megillah. And that is, borrow a kosher Megillah. Any time of night, any time of day. If, right? Let's say you're in a Jewish community, there's going to be somebody with a kosher Megillah. They may need to use it for themselves, okay. So when they're done with it, ask to borrow it. And then all you need to do is turn on a recorder, or if you have it while the shul is reading, listen over the phone, Go on Zoom, request that they put on a Zoom link or whatever it is. And while the Megillah is being read, you can say the words along with the reader from a kosher scroll. You're becoming the reader. That's it. You become the reader. I don't know how to read the Megillah. Now you do because you're just saying it quietly along with them. And now you're your own Bakari. So either you can even do it with a recording. You're reading it to yourself. I, 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 somebody called me up last year. They were going to... They, um, involved in, in a tremendous mitzvah. They had to be somewhere urgently to help Yidin. And they were going to be on a plane for a number of hours on Purim night. And they had no, you know, well, what am I going to do? There's nowhere I could go to hear a Megillah reading. They weren't going to be anywhere near a city. I said, go get a kosher Megillah. Download a recording of a Megillah reading. And on the plane, you'll sit there, you say the brachos, Listen, put on your headphones, and while you listen to the recording, you say it along, boom. <laughs> you became your own shul. You're able to, able to again, this is a beautiful etza because it's also educational. It also trains us how to learn how to do this and uh, the process of it. But again, it only works if you can get your hands on, uh, on a kosher megillah. Otherwise, reach out to the community, Baruch Hashem, especially here. We have a lot of people who are available uh, to read megillah. If people are ill, they can't leave their home, and uh, we could uh, try to arrange something. Okay, now the Ramah writes, there are certain psukim, there's particularly four verses in particular where it's supposed to be said out loud. Four verses in particular are meant to be said out loud. 
Um, this is really so that people stay alert and uh, people don't end up uh, feeling the need to uh, to to uh, f- doze off. Because if you doze off, you no longer have your obligation. So if every once in a while everybody has to say something together, it kind of keeps us more alert. Um, there's also a minug that when the, the chazan says, that the Balkore, I'm calling him the Chazim, but the Balkore, the reader, should say it in a very loud voice. Rabbi Perlman does it here. He does it very, very loud. Right? He's, goes very loud. Um, but that is a, uh, that's a custom. Why is that the custom? Because that's the beginning of the miracle of our salvation starting to happen. So we're going to put an emphasis on those words. The Mechaber and the Ramah also write. When it comes to the, the names of the ten sons of Haman, and somebody sent the chat, I didn't have a chance to read the entire thing, but I believe it has to do with the ten sons of Haman. When you read the ten sons of Haman, ideally the custom is to read it all in one breath. Why? To let us know that they all died at the exact same moment. They all died with the same breath at the same exact time. That's the custom. Now, let's say I can't hold my breath that long. Or I tried doing it and I got stuck. I can still have two more names. No problem. You did it in two breaths, fine. You did it in five breaths, fine. The custom is try to do one breath to give off this message. But if you do it in multiple breaths, you don't need, you don't need to go back. The custom actually is to start from chamesh uh, meyais ish, right? Five hundred men along with them. The custom is to read that all in one breath, and you know, in each shul, the balkari makes a whole to do uh, out of it. It's a custom. We do read it together out loud. If one's not able to read it all in one breath. Don't get nervous about it. It's okay. Now, the Ramah writes, when we say the name of, of Haman, so some people had a custom to write Haman's name on the bottom of their shoe and stamp their feet, says the Ramah, to bang out the name of Haman. And other people have a minog, says the Ramah, to, to hit their hands or hit the table, hit the floor, make noise as we call it. Nowadays we got the gragus. At the time that Haman's name is said, says the Ramah, Ve'ain levatel shum minog aylil aygalov. You should not remove this custom or mock it. Some people got very nervous. Too much noise during Haman. It's a custom in Kal Yisrael. Chill out. It's an occupational hazard if you don't like it. Yeah? It's part of the job, part of par for the course for Megillah reading, right? Now, doesn't have to be overdone. And the minig really is to only do it once. In a lot of places, in, I shouldn't say the minig is only do it once. To fulfill the minig, you really only need to do it once. You don't need to do it every time. Bottom line is, if a tzibur, if a congregation wants to establish to only make noise and shake ragar by one hamunks, they want to keep it moving along or for whatever reason, shop your dummy, gezunta hate, that's great, go do it. But to a completely eradicate making noise during Haman's name, there's a reason why it's been like this throughout the generations. It's a custom, and that custom is meant to uh, is meant to remain in place. Okay. A Balkore, a Megillah Laner, who is an Avel, who's a mourner. So there's different psukim about this. There's different rulings about whether he should be the one to lane the Megillah for the congregation, whether he should step down for that year. The bottom line is, according to most poskim and the psak that we follow, it is mutter, it is allowed for an aval to read uh, from the Megillah and be Yotze the Sibor with his reading. Okay. We're now going to discuss the mitzvah of, that was the mitzvah of Megillah, things to keep in mind, and now we're going to move to the daytime mitzvahs and get into the mitzvah of Matanos Le'evyonim, the gifts to the poor, the obligation to give tzedakah on Purim Day. Each individual, man and woman, is obligated to give at least two financial gifts to two poor people. So it doesn't mean each poor person gets two. It means one financial gift to one and one financial gift to the other. We'll see what this financial gift is, what the exact obligation of Matanas Levionim is. Now, before we say the minimum... Let's explain the overall idea. What is the thought process of a Jew when it comes to money on Purim? Says the Shulchan Aruch, on Purim, we're not 
we're, we're, we're not frugal with our tzedakah. Ella rather says the Shochan Aruch, says the Code of Jewish Law, Kol Misha Poshet Yado, Lito, anybody who sticks out their hand and says, please help me, no sin law you give it. I already gave my two poor people. If another person comes along and sticks out their hand, give them something. It could be a quarter. Get anybody who sticks out their hand collecting for themselves, give them something. Now, says Rabbi Shmuel Kamenetsky, Shlita, Zolzain Gezunt, he says, this applies to poor people. It does not apply to organizations. If somebody comes around collecting for an organization, you don't have this, you don't have this rule of kola poshet yad, whoever asks you give. It's referring to specifically poor people that come and ask, even if you already gave your mitzvah, don't be frugal. Just uh, give a little more. Okay? It's okay. Keep giving. Um, this obligation of Matanas Lavionim, similar to the half shekel, is a new obligation from Miser. So one is not allowed to use their tithing money to fulfill the mitzvah of matanos le'avyonim. However, any money that you give over the required amount, you certainly may use from miser. Okay, now what is the required amount? What is that? So I'll tell you the range that I've heard from various modern day poskim. The range is from as little as a dollar Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky writes that, to as much as $7. And the reason why that's the range is because the money needs to be spent in a way that the poor person can purchase for themselves some sort of bakavadika meal, some sort of respectable meal. But purchase a deli sandwich, what does a deli sandwich cost? Eh, five, six, seven bucks, okay? Even Reb Shmuel Kamenetsky, who says that at minimum it's a dollar, he says, lechatchili, he still says, ideally, you should give an amount that the ani, that the poor person will benefit from, will, will enjoy. So he says, even though I'm saying at minimum it's a dollar, it's proper to give an amount that the poor person will be able to purchase something that they could, a food that they can enjoy on Purim. Now, why is it important to know the minimum amount? Because remember, we're not supposed to be frugal on Purim. We're supposed to just give a lot of tzedakah. A lot of our tzedakah we want to give from Miser, perhaps. So here's the halacha. Let's say Matanus Yonim is $5. Let's say that's what we're going to use, okay? So you give one poor person $5. Another poor person, $5. If you give away $100 on Purim, you can use $90 from your miser. If you give away 1000 you can give 990 Anything above the minimum, according to Shul Kamenetsky, you just needed to give $1 to each. So if you give away $1,000, it's all, 998 can be used for miser. Okay? So again, there's a minimum amount that... You're not allowed to use miser from. And what's that amount? An amount that a poor person can purchase some food for themselves. Anything above that minimum amount, it is permitted to use miser. Now, Rav Shul Kamenetsky holds as well. He says that lechatchila, which means even ideally, one is permitted to give a check. He says nowadays in America, a check is considered cash. Even if Purim falls out on a Sunday, where most banks are closed. Because since the person in need can still technically get some sort of, first of all, they know that it's coming, so they're willing to spend other, money's fungible, so willing to spend other money on their meal because of the check you gave them. That's one idea. Another idea is because if they show me uh, or show you uh, their $10 check that they got, and they say, can I borrow the $10 and I'll pay you back tomorrow on Monday when the bank is open, people will give them that. So he says, even the Khatila, it's okay to, to write a check to a poor person because in our society, at least, a check has enough substance that it's, uh, it's close enough to being a, uh, you know, a dollar itself. The obligation of Matanas Yainim, again, of giving to the poor, applies to both men and, uh, and women equally. A, a husband's permitted to give on behalf of a wife. What do you do if a poor, uh, a poor person also has to give matanos le'avyonim, but what happens if he doesn't really have money to give away? So what do you do? So what you do is what we used to do in yeshiva. 
Okay, when you're on a, uh, you know, $10 a week allowance, uh, so you're not giving $5 to each honey. So what we would do is, you go to the canteen, and you buy a can of Coke and a bag of Dipsy Doodles. Yeah, that's, we did this for Mishleach Manas also. But we do the same thing with money. For Mishleach Manas, we would take, which we'll get to soon, Take a can of uh, Coke and Dipsy Doodles. You give it to your friend. You say, here's my, his, his, uh, and the friend takes the can of Coke and Dipsy Doodles and says, oh, it's mine? Okay, now I'm fulfilling my mitzvah by giving it back to you, right? You, you play around Robin and you keep the money moving uh, in a circle and ultimately the one who started with it ends up with the money back as well. You got your mitzvah because each person had the ability to say, no, I'm not giving it back. They made a full acquisition on it. So the ideal recommendation, if somebody is so poor that they can't really afford to give away money, is find another poor person and say, listen, I'll give you and you, uh, and you give it back. Okay. What if a person doesn't even, ha- doesn't even have that amount of money? So then you're not obligated. You're not in this. Yeah? Okay. If you can't do it, you can't do it. Who's considered poor? Who's considered poor? Who's considered a person who's worthy of receiving matanas lavyanim? So many people give matanas lavyanim through their shul, through uh, various funds or you know organizations, and they don't they don't want to do it personally. But if somebody wants to do it personally, how do I decide that this person is roi is worthy of receiving matanas lavyanim? So interestingly, the word evion means. Like destitute. Nothing. However, the halacha is actually very broad. The category of who's permitted to receive matanas levyanim, that you do not really need to be poor to be in the category of receiving matanas levyanim. It's actually, says of Shmuel Kamenetsky, it's a decision that could be made by the giver. If the giver thinks to himself that the poor, that, not, I'm not going to call it poor, that this person, would benefit greatly from the $20 that I'm giving them, it's very helpful to them, you fulfilled your mitzvah. The person say, I'm not an ani, I'm not poor. Nothing to do with that. If you, if you will strongly appreciate this money on Purim, you're, so that's okay. You can give money to such a person. So it's a very broad category of, of uh, who's, considered a, uh, who's considered somebody worthy of receiving that money. I'm sorry? Correct. Yeah. Another, another Jewish person. Yeah. It's also brought down in the Rishonim, it's better on Purim to give a lot of money to a lot of people than a lot of money to few people. Very often we want to make a big impact. So we say, let's say I'm going to give, I'm going to give $1,000 on Purim. So many people want to say, I'll give two poor people 500 bucks. I want to make a big impact. It's actually better to give 20 people $50. Because on Purim, it's about the amount of times that we give. Now, obviously, we don't want to give people an amount that they're not going to appreciate, okay? But, or to give 10 people $100 or, or five people $200. But the idea is it's better to give a little less to each person and be able to give to more people than to give a lot to just two or three, uh, 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 two or three anif. The money could be given to a fund even before per. So if let's say today's Sunday, a person were to say to themselves, you know what? I'm going to give the money to a fund knowing it's going to be handed out on Purim itself. You don't have to actually hand the money to the organization on Purim. But the organization's responsible to make sure to make sure that any money that comes in is either handed out to the to the poor on the day or at least set aside for particular people on Purim days. Interesting that even if you have a a fund to support a number of people, but the fund knows that it's not going to get around to each person. As long as it's set aside the, the money, let's say this hundred dollars, the, the fund knows it's going to be going to this person within the next week. It's as if the fund is taking the place of the poor person and the fund's permitted to do that. But that's all, that's all luck if anybody oversees a fund. Ideally, the money should all be handed out on, uh, on, uh, Purim day. Okay.
Mishloyach Manas. That is the overview of the gifts to the poor. And now we're going to talk about food, which is uh, given to other Jews just to build reyes, just to build friendship, nothing to do with poor and not poor. It's a mitzvah of Mishloach Manos. Mishloach Manos means to send Manos, uh, portions. It's plural, which means that there's a mitzvah to give two portions of food to one person. So when it comes to financial gifts on Purim, we give two people a portion. When it comes to the food, you give one person two portions. It says in the Shulchan Aruch, if you want to give more, Meshubach, it's praiseworthy. It's a nice thing to do, because again, what, what's the goal? To build reyes, to build friendship, to b- build camaraderie in Klal Yisrael. And I'll just add in a, a, a beautiful, beautiful nugget that has to do with Purim over here. Many times people get very upset at themselves. Purim's over, like, oh, it was so busy. It was so busy, I don't, know, I don't even know what I accomplished. It was just so hectic, huh? Purim's meant to be busy. It's actually meant to be a day that's not so calculated. Which is also why we're going to see soon there's a mitzvah to drink on Purim. And we'll see how that plays out. Why? Why is there a mitzvah to drink and how does it play out? Because Purim's a day where we're supposed to go beyond our regular parameters. Our regular boundaries. And when Purim's a day where we're running from here, running to there, our mind's not holding us back. And we're, we're, we're just active, active, active. And it's not about our minds, you know, holding us in, but we'll expound on this in Mirz Hashem a little, bit, uh, a little bit more later. What is considered two portions? Two portions means two different types of food. Not two brachos. Very important. It could be the same bracha. You could give, take a plate, cut up an apple, cut up a pomegranate. You got your two foods, your two portions, same exact bracha, you get your mitzvah, no problem whatsoever. Okay. However, two of the same thing, different flavor, orange soda and Coca-Cola, that's not considered two portions. You can't give one bottle of orange Coke, uh, of orange soda, one bottle of, of Coke. That's considered one thing. Another, another thing to keep in mind is if let's say, you know, sometimes people will send, uh, I'll send toast with butter. Two things. No. If it's together, it becomes one thing. And the same thing will hold true with a salad. If you have a vegetable salad, you're not going to look at the vegetable salad and say, oh, well, there's lettuce with tomatoes. Oh, lettuce and tomatoes is two things. No, once it's a salad, it's considered one portion, one entity, and that's all. You only, you only get one thing from that. Now, however, let's say you don't make a salad. Let's say I have a plate and on my plate, I have a, I have a, you know, a plate that gives me my portions and I put my lettuce over here, my tomatoes over here, my cucumbers. Beautiful. So then, it's takanat mixed together, and uh, you, you gave three different things. There's no problem whatsoever. How much food is considered a portion? The answer is the amount of food you would serve a guest in your house. If somebody were to come to your house and you were to offer them something, how big would that be? That's how you fulfill your mitzvah. So if somebody comes to my house and I give them a little almond and a craisin, I'm like, oh, it's two portions. You'd be like, hello? What am I supposed to do with this? Right? Somebody comes to you guys, you're not offering them one almond to one craisin. But you might offer them a little 100 gram almond bag, right? Not 100 grams a little bit, but like 100 calories. 100 calories. Everybody's in the calories. Now, yeah, 100 calories of almonds, 100 calorie craisin bag. Okay. So that's something that's more, that's uh, respectable. And one will have fulfilled their mitzvah. Correct. Now, right. Now, another thing to keep in mind is, uh, well, it has to be a share of food. You have to be able to make a bracha chrein on it. Yeah, you make a bracha Now, one thing to keep in mind is it also will depend on the giver and the taker whether you're really fulfilling your mitzvah in the best possible way because what's the goal? To build friendship. So depending on your stature, position, relationship with that person will depend on what that means. If I were to walk over to somebody in shul and say, you know, I want to build friendship and I give you, okay, a, a can of... A can of soda and a, a thing of Mentos. That's, that's, that, that's like a Shalach as my kid would give. I don't know if you're really going to appreciate a thing of Mentos and, and Coca-Cola. And dep- especially because of our relationship, it's like, okay, maybe something a little more chashu. So 
to give out all your extra shalach manas gazunt the hate. You could do it like that, and this you you know follow your family theme of uh, being clowns or hockey players, and you know whatever you want to do, that's fine. But make sure at least one person gets a shalach manas that's respectable, that's that's fulfilling, you know, fulfilling the uh, the mitzvah according to all opinions. Okay, it has to be called a portion which is respectable. Another thing to keep in mind is it has to be edible. It has to be edible. So if you send raw meat to somebody, you don't get your mitzvah. It has to be ready to eat. It's food that's already prepared. That's how one gets, uh, that's how one gets their mitzvah. This applies, again, both to men and women. If a poor person can't afford the, can't afford the food, so make a round robin, find somebody else, like we said about the Coke and the Dipsy Doodles. Now it's brought down, it's not a halacha, it's brought down as a chumrah, a stringency, to particularly send your mishloach manos through a shliach. Since it says mishloach manos to send the gifts, some people are careful to send the food, not to hand it directly to the recipient, but to give it to somebody else to deliver. Even if it's a three-year-old kid, you say, okay, here, take this and please hand it over. It's a little, the, the reason for this is that when, when it's delivered, it's like you're getting an Amazon package, you know. It's more, it's more fun than when you buy it by yourself in the store. Ah, you know, it gets delivered. Um, drink does count as food, absolutely. Um, okay, that was just a question that was uh, chatted in. Sending Mishloach Monos anonymously, Lechora, it seems you don't get your mitzvah. Because the purpose is to increase friendship. So if let's say so the person's not home and you just leave it at their door with no note, and they don't know who it's from, so one should not rely on that Mishloach Manos as their mitzvah. Same thing would hold true if you, uh, you know, the same thing would hold true if um, you know the person's traveling, you know the person's not home. Again, make sure that in order to increase the friendship, the person's around, if there's a family member home, that's okay. Even if the person themselves you want to deliver it to is not around, but if let's say there's somebody else living in the house who could accept it on their behalf, that will work, uh, that will work as well. To send Mishloach Manas to somebody who you hate, you get your mitzvah, and it's probably even a big mitzvah. Because again, you're, you're showing, a, you're willing to take the steps in the right direction of making up. Okay. A person who's in mourning is obligated to send Mishloach Manos, but a person who's in mourning should not receive. You're not supposed to send a gift to somebody who's in their year of mourning for a father or mother. If a person wants to send, better to give it to a family member as opposed to the, uh, the mourner themselves who's within the year, and this applies to other relatives within 30 days. Now let's get into the Purim Se'uda. Let's get into the meal. I thought there's going to be a half hour, and guess what? <laughs> Not even close. Okay, so feel free to log off when you want. When's the proper time to eat the meal? Here we go. So the meal should be eaten after Mincha on Purim afternoon, ideally majority of it should be eaten before sunset. It seems that's not the custom. That's how it says in Shulchan Aruch. But the custom seems to be just start your meal at some point before Shkia. It's important to make the meal over bread if one's able to. There's no other allergies or whatever. It's important to establish your meal over bread and have meat. If you don't have meat, it seems it's okay to establish the meal on chicken as well. Now, let's get into drinking. You're supposed to, There's no mitzvah to drink before the meal. To drink wine, to get high before the meal is no mitzvah. It says, A person is supposed to drink enough on Purim until they don't know the difference between Ar Haman and Baruch Mordechai. Says the Ramah, you do not need to drink so much to get to the point where you're stoned. You could drink a lot, you could drink a little. As long as you keep thinking about the Rabbanish If your mind goes off the Rabbanish your drinking is a total waste, you don't have a mitzvah of Purim. Okay? And it seems that most of the poskim say, this is the halacha l'maysa, practical halacha is like the Ramah. Nowadays, Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky says, especially that we've seen that it's uh, when people get high, they have a very hard time keeping their mind on the Rabbani Shalom. And instead it turns towards uh, levity and stupidity and all sorts of things that uh, come out of people's mouths. They don't know how to control their mouths. 
So says Rishwal Kamenetsky, Leka Inyan Lehishtaker Afilum At. There's no mitzvah to drink even a little bit. Ulehishtaker Harbe Isura Namiika. To get very drunk, you didn't have air. He says it's Usr. It's not allowed because nobody here really knows how to drink in a way where my getting drunk brings me closer on a much higher, higher level. So you're going to drink, you're going to get a high gazunta hate, you get your mitzvah, but make sure you're only drinking to an amount where you can still keep focus that it's all about their bunishment, and this is where it's worthwhile uh, focusing on the goal of Purim Day. We said it's so busy, we're uninhibited, we're not bound by the regular logic that usually is keeping us very inhibited. Purim's meant to be a day where we're like, we're not, our minds are not really present to limit us anymore. The goal of drinking on Purim is to realize that my life should be lived up, not sideways. I shouldn't be living my life based on who's to my left and who's to my right. That's usually how we live and that's the normal way to live. But when a person gets a little high, whether it's high with wine, whether it's high with Torah, whether it's high with their emotions, and they realize, they get, we, we take ourselves to a level where it's not about him, it's not about her, it's not about them, it's about upstairs. It's about the Rebbeinu Shalom, it's all about my relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. that's how a person has fulfilled his mitzvah. Now, when it comes to actual drinking of Purim, because that's the goal, ideally it's brought down to drink wine, but let's say a person needs to you know, become a little uninhibited in their mind by drinking something, a, a different alcohol, it could be beer, it could be whiskey, it could be vodka, Unless you're on strike against Russia, I heard that's a thing now. Not to you know, not to uh, drink any Russian vodka. Okay, I'm not stating my opinion. I don't drink vodka, but one can and may fulfill their mitzvah in that fashion as well. Says Reb Shmuel, probably with a smile on his face, even though I can't see him, but he has a safer here that we're learning from. Says Reb Shmuel, you know, by some of the other mitzvahs like Mishloach Manos, there's a mitzvah of chinuch. So your child should send Mishloach Manos to his friends. He says, Mistavra, I'm assuming with a smile. He says, logic would say there's no obligation to, to uh, train your children in the mitzvah of drinking on per. <laughs> I'm sure he wrote that with a smile. He says, therefore, one should not be mechanach your children to, uh, to start drinking on per. Okay, what about a person who's in mourning about joining in the Purim Suda? So a mourner is permitted to join in a Purim Suda as long as it's in a very limited way. With family, it's okay. But to join a very large uh, social party is best to refrain from. During the benching of the meal, if a person forgets Alanisim in the meal, again, you do not need, uh, you do not need to repeat the benching. And that's it for now. We'll hold it here for now. Um, and uh, we'll take any questions. We'll allow the opportunity to, if people want to send something to chat, or if they have a particular question, please uh, unmute yourself and feel free to ask.